Turn with me, if you would, to our launching point, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective are unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege that we have to stand on the Apostle Peter's shoulders, to learn, to grow, to better understand the world we live in and the way things work. So may you speak to us today. And may we respond in obedience. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So we've worked through this vocab list, essentially. Things like virtue, faith, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection. And now we're on the last one, which is what? Love. It's last, but it's not least, is it? In fact, the Bible says this. It says there remains these three, the big three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So the only way from that text that you can figure out how great love is, is to look at the things that it's greater than. That love is actually greater than faith. How important is faith to a believer? It's really important. <laughs> Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says that we are saved by grace through faith. Without faith, we're not saved. And yet love is greater than that. And then there's hope. You ever been hopeless? There's no more desperate, dark time than when a person has lost hope. And yet the Bible says love's even greater than that. So why is love so great? Here's why. Here's why I think Peter puts it last. Because love is not the duty of a believer. Love is the destiny of a believer. We are ultimately to become love, lovers. In fact, you look throughout the Bible and it keeps saying that. The, the law, all this stuff right here, the Bible says this, love fulfills the law. You could look at every single command every single prohibition. And if you added them all up, they would all equal one thing, love. The Bible says this, that God is love. Like his essence is love. Jesus was asked a question to try to trip him up. What's the greatest command? What is Jesus' response? Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Over and over in the Bible, that's what it says. Love is not our duty, love's our destiny. That's what we're to become. So Peter puts it last. This is the ultimate. You do this and all these other things are taken care of. It's love. So then that brings this question, what is love then? What is love? There's this guy who makes these great definitions. His name is Ambrose Bierce. And he made this definition of love. He says, love, a noun, a temporary insanity curable by marriage. (laughs) Isn't that so awesome? I was like, that's brilliant. Okay. (laughs) And the reason why we say that is because we've equated love with something that we say this now, hey, I fell in love, right? Like I fell into a ditch. I also fell in love. Like they're very synonymous. It's ridiculous, right? We have this word love and it now is so like, it's just crazy to me. And everyone knows this about love and marriage. They know Love is, is great, it's good, but marriage is something more. When we say we fell in love and we get married, marriage is something more than just that, right? It's more than those feelings. I say this all the time. The only people that believe marriage is easy are engaged people. They're the only ones. And I joke that, that marriage is it's the first reality show. God invented it. Take two very different people, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different kind of foods that they like, different preferences and how to, how to decorate the home. Take those two people. One of them always has too much testosterone. The other one has these periodic hormonal spikes. You put them together in a room and you lock it. And you're like, good luck with that. Figure that one out. I mean, it's crazy. But it's all kind of based on this, this quasi understand this word love, that love is like this feeling thing. But the truth is like, this was the hardest one for me not to do a theological treatment of because love in our dictionary today is useless. It's a useless word. You might as well throw it away because I love dark chocolate and I love black tea and I love the Oregon State Beavers. It's called tough love on me, right? And I also love my wife and I love my kids. Well, Is my love for my wife and kids different than my love for black tea? Boy, it better be. (laughs) Or I'm I'm doomed. And yet we use that, we just throw this word, it's useless now. The Greeks understood that. The Greeks kind of know, that's the original language of the New Testament. The Greeks kind of knew, that's stupid. So they had these different words that helped categorize, like this is the kind of love this is. The word right here that's used, it's the word agape. It's a new, brilliant kind of word. And, and so when, when I read love, I go, oh man, we need to go, go to 1 Corinthians 13 or, or Galatians 5.22 because it, we need to understand what this is. But we have not done that in this series. It hasn't been a theological treatment of these words. It's been rather, let's find a person that lived this. So the word agape, it literally means this, utter self-giving love without any requirement for payback. When you think about that, to me, there's only one person in the Bible that exemplifies 
that kind of character? Who would that be? Jesus. And when you think about Jesus being love and you read the gospels, you come up with so much material. Like this was the hardest one to kind of, hey, how do you summarize this? So a lot of you are gonna feel like, Matt, you didn't cover this or you didn't say that right. I know that, pray for me, pray I'll be better. But um, you know, this is a, you could use a month of Sundays on this one thing, Jesus exemplifying love. It's massive. So when I tried to think, how do I do this in one Sunday? There was one verse to me that typifies utter self-giving love. And it's John 3, 16. And it says this, for God so loved, agape for God so loved the world that he wrote a song about it and Taylor Swift covered it. He told me he loved me. He had warm fuzzies towards me. Now, what does it say? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? Love does something. Love acts. Love demonstrates itself. Read 1 Corinthians 13, four through eight. And it's telling us what love is. And it's, it does this and doesn't do that. Love is kind. Love does not boast. Love believes all things. Love is not envious. It just goes back and forth in its actions, not warm fuzzies, not emotions. Love acts and love does. That's love. So what we're going to do is I'm going to look at six kind of ways that you see Jesus walking out love. And there's 60 of them. I just grabbed six. Uh, So this to me, if you're going to look at 2017 and try to think, well, I want to, I want to, Live brilliantly in 2017. Maybe one of these is something that you say, man, that's it. Jesus, make me like that. Help me. So what does love do in the life of Jesus? Number one, number one, love gives time. When you think about love, utter self-giving, love gives time. And when I thought about all six that I'm doing, this was my hardest one because I am very guarded about my time. And, and, I, and like, here's my illustration of that. Um, whenever I drive somewhere, I always try to like multitask. So I'll load up a, a MP3 player or an iPod with podcasts and listen to them. Or I have radio shows that I'll listen to and I really wanna c- catch what's going on with the radio show. So whenever I'm driving, I'm trying to do that, multitasking. And so I'll go pick up my kids and picking up Elijah John, my, my son, not a problem. I'll pick him up, I'll have the radio show going Elijah will get in the car like, hey, dad. Like, hey, bud, how's your day? Good. Okay. And we drive home. (laughs) That's kind of it. (laughs) Not a man of many words. Okay. But then I pick up my daughter, Gabrielle. She's 11. She's my youngest daughter. She gets in the car. She sits down. The very first thing she does is guess what? Turns off the radio. And then she looks at me and just says, bah, all the way home. Like, it's a gift. It's like unbelievable. Like, I cannot, I know everything about her. And I'm still thinking about the, ah, oh, that talk radio show is so good. <laughs> I'm selfish with my time. The best way I think you can know how giving you are with your time is what happens to you when you're interrupted. When your plans get derailed, how do you respond? Look how Jesus responds 
It's amazing to me. He's preaching. The word is preaching the word. He's in a packed out house. There's no room in it. There's people outside. They're peeking in the windows. When all of a sudden in the middle of him, probably hitting his points, there's a noise on the roof. And then there's like a sawzall cutting through the roof, like shavings are falling on the ground in front of Jesus. Just imagine how long it takes to cut a hole in a roof to lower a man through. How long would that take? That's happening the whole time he's teaching, right? So finally they get the roof out of the way. I don't know if it falls down or they take it out. And then, then, then down comes right in the middle of this preaching, this dude that sat right in front of him. What would you do? How would you respond? Got insurance, right? You're paying for that. You know what Jesus does? It says, he goes, I can't believe how much faith you guys have up there. You four guys and you, you're healed right there. That's brilliant to me. I don't respond like that. I don't give time like that. Yet that's how Jesus responds when someone interrupts him. Another one is this guy interrupts Jesus. He's, he's doing his thing with his boys. This guy interrupts Jesus and says, would you please come to my home? and heal my daughter, she's sick. And Jesus says, sure. And turns around, heads the other way. Now we had this idea like, okay, it's 10 minutes, you go over to dude's house, you do your thing, you leave. That wasn't 2000 years ago. Number one, you're walking, probably a couple hour walk to get to the guy's house. You get to the house, you you would do your thing, but you're always gonna be invited for dinner. Jesus was essentially saying there, I give you my whole day. You can have my whole day. While he's walking from the first interruption, he's walking along and it says some woman comes up in this mob of people and grabs a hold of the hem of his garment. Now imagine that for a second. You're walking down 6th Street. Some person of the opposite sex comes running up to you and just grabs your pants. How would you respond? Like 911, right? 911, get over here. Got a pervert. (laughs) What does Jesus do? He goes, hey, what's going on, girl? She goes, I've had this issue of blood for 12 years. I've gone to every single doctor. I've prayed. I've tried every kind of remedy and I still have it. And Jesus says, you're healed. And that's a great way to respond. I don't respond that way when I'm interrupted. It's amazing to me. He he gets away from his disciples in Mark chapter one. And it says he goes way before sunrise to go pray. I need to go pray. I'm gonna get away. He goes up on a mountain. He goes and prays and then His disciples are like, where's Jesus? So Peter and some guys go on a search party. They find Jesus praying and like, dude, what are you doing? And Jesus responds, you morons, I'm praying. You should try it. (laughs) No, he doesn't respond that way. He goes, okay, time to go now. Interrupted in praying. His response is so gracious. And then one time he's asleep in a boat. And guess what his disciples do to him? They wake him up. If you really want to know how you respond to interruptions, the test is how do you respond when you're really tired and someone wakes you up, right? Parents, you all know this. Your kids will be like, dad, are you asleep? What's the mystery here? I am horizontal. I am very still and my eyes are shut. How can you not figure that out? I mean, this is basic. I am asleep. But they don't do that. But they do, dad, you're asleep. Dad, 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 dad. Like, ah, where are you? That's how I respond. How does Jesus respond? He does a miracle. And the miracle he does is not making them deaf and mute, which is what I would have done. This will not happen again. I'll guarantee it. Oh, 
Like over and over, I can just, that, that's just a sampling. There are tons of them. Jesus' response to people being interrupted is so agape, so giving. And here's the thing about time. Time is your scarcest resource. Time is your scarcest resource. You can't get it back. So right now they have this clock. It's called the countdown clock. And you put into the countdown clock, like your age, some medical kind of facts about what you do and don't do, body index, all this kind of information goes into this clock. And then it calculates how many hours you have left to live and starts to roll that back down. So each morning you wake up and there's 24 hours less on that clock. Some people, they input all their information. It actually is negative. Like, you should be dead already. Sorry. But just imagine that for a second. And there's no way to turn it back. Every day, 24 hours less. Every day, 24 hours less. Your time is your scarcest resource. You can get more stuff. You can get more money. You can get another job. You can get all kinds of these other things. You can never get your 24 hours back. And if you look at the life of Jesus, what was he always spending his time on? People, people, because people are eternal. My house, my car, my gadgets, my furniture, my projects, one day will all be drug out to the Medford or the Merlin landfill. And that's all that they will be. No one will love them. No one will care about them nothing, but the person sitting next to you will still exist. In fact, when the very mountains around this valley are worn down by the rain and the sun and the wind and the snow, when they're worn flat, the person next to you will still exist. And so Jesus says, I am taking my most precious commodity and I will be investing it in people, 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 people. Do we invest our time well? Love gives time. The most precious commodity. Jesus gave his time, number one. Number two, Jesus, love, gives an ear. Look at John chapter three, and we'll be in John for the next, all the way to the last one. Two, three, four, and five. Listen to this. It's John three, and you got to get the, you got to catch what's being said here. So there's a little bit of work. Verse one says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. You guys know who the Pharisees are? They're the bad guys in this text. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So if you don't know who the Pharisees are, this is the group of people that comes to hate Jesus, wants to kill Jesus, and will eventually do that. This is the crew that's gonna kill Jesus. So one of this crew comes to Jesus and begins to have a conversation. So, verse two. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You keep reading, there's this conversation that happens. Here's what I want you to catch. Jesus does not respond to him by saying, yeah, what do you want, murderer? Yeah, what do you want? Your crew wants to kill me. What does he do? He listens to what Nicodemus actually has to say and responds to what Nicodemus actually says. Do you know that's very rare? Sociologists say this now, 
that if you have a relationship with somebody, 80% of what you hear is not what the person says, but your perception of what you think the person said. So it's not, hey, you said these things. It's you're a murderer and all you're talking about is murder right now because you've pegged them and you keep them there. 80% of what we perceive we hear is not what the person says. Like this is something that I use all the time in marriage counseling because something happens in marriage counseling. It's like all this baggage is attached to everything that people say. And I actually learned this kind of idea from premarital counseling, where I get two people that wanna get married, they come to me and they're saying, hey, we wanna get married. And I always ask a couple questions. One of them I ask just to get to know them is, so, so tell me why he, tell me why she is the one for you. Gals, top three every time. He was the first guy that truly understood me. Yeah, <laughs> you can snigger. <laughs> Guys, is that true? No. What did we do? Listened. That was it. It's when she's talking, fiance dude is just going, yeah, oh, whoa, yeah. And then when she's done, huh, let's go get something to eat. Oh, I love him. Right? But then you get married and somehow that simple little thing disappears. And so I just backtrack with people and I go to James 1.19. Listen, the Bible says this, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to wrath. Usually you're all upset because you're not doing one or two right. That's why. And so I make it real simple. Slow to speak means this, quick to listen means this. When the other person's mouth is moving, yours is not. Like it's just that simple. And then when they're done, husband, wife, whoever it is, here's what you do. You say, Honey, sweetie, I think I heard you say this. And then you summarize what you believe they just said. Now, why do you do that? 80% is perception. So we grab the 20% that reaffirms what we don't like about that person. And then we pull it out of context and then we beat each other with it for a while, right? We're not actually hurting what the person has said. We just remember, oh, that's a trigger right there. Oh, I hate that. Oh, she makes me mad. Oh, she always says always and never. So it doesn't matter what she's actually saying. I'm just going to pick always and never the 20%. And everybody does that. We don't really listen. We say, you're a murderer and I'm going to keep you there. So you're able to summarize back to them and the person can say, what? I did not say that. This is what I said. And then the other person says, oh, that makes sense. Let's go get something to eat. <laughs> Marriage done. <laughs> Jesus here doesn't peg Nicodemus as a murdering Pharisee. He listens to what Nicodemus actually has to say. Listen to each other. Agape listens. It gives an ear. Listen to your kids. Don't peg them as something so that they can never change from that. Don't peg your spouse as something that she and he can never change from. The gospel says there can be change and transformation. We should be the people that believe the most in, wow, people can change. I'm not gonna hold them to something that they're not anymore. I'm not gonna hold them and call them a murderer. No way. I'm not gonna peg them that way. Listen, love, agape gives an ear. Number three, 
Love gives security. Flip forward to chapter 10. One of the absolute requirements for any depth of relationship is this one right here. Love gives security. Chapter 10, verse 27. Everyone should know this text. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I and the father are one. That is a brilliant text. Jesus just said, I've got a hold of you and I am never going to let go of you. And the father has your other hand and he will never let go of you. You are doubly secure. The only way a relationship will ever be authentic and deep and right is if it is built in the soil of unconditional acceptance. You will not scare me off. You will not drive me away. I am going to hold on to you. So this last year, 2016, I celebrated my 16th wedding anniversary with my wife. And we're talking a little bit about love and marriage because they go together like a, so they're always gonna be like kind of intertwined a little bit. So um, I got married in 2000. One of the reasons is because it's really easy to figure out how long I've been married. I just think about the day. Okay, what is it? All right. So 16 years, and I took my wife out, and we're at this table, and the waitress comes over, and, and she starts to, hey, what are you guys doing here? Oh, celebrating our anniversary. How many years? 16. Wow, 16 years. That's so long. I was just thinking there, like, really? Is that where we're at in the world now? That 16 years is like this massive marriage. Well, that's the way she made it sound. She's just like, what's the secret? How have you guys stayed together for 16 long years? Wow. And I don't know why I did this. I just looked at her and I said, because I promised. That's why. I said, for better, for worse, for rich, for, par- for poor. I am here. I will not leave. I made a promise. And that's the concrete reason why we're staying together. And she just went, oh, let me get your appetizers. He's like, you scare me. (laughs) It's the truth, though. The only way charity will feel safe sharing everything with me is if I say, you will never scare me away. I am in this. I am in this for the long haul, period. You will not scare me away. The only way I'll ever feel safe actually sharing everything with Charity is if she has said the same thing to me, you will not scare me away. My love is secure. Jesus, our example of agape, says, I have a hold of you. I will never let you go. You will never scare me away. Brilliant. But Matt, we've endured so much in our marriage. Don't throw that away then. But she, he violated my trust. I can't trust anymore. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. That's who you trust. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. They're finding this with addiction, that those that, that 
get, become unaddicted, one of the common denominators is this. There was one person who did John chapter 10 with them. You will not scare me off. I am in this with you no matter what. I agape you. And that does not mean that they went and bailed them out of jail because very often the best thing that can happen to a person is to sit in jail for a while and think. It doesn't even matter that they paid their electric bill. That's not what it means. It means that they came over and said, I will sit with you in the dark because I agape you. And they found people that do that, that have that, are the ones that often break addiction because agape gives security. Hmm. Number four, agape gives faith. We'll do these, last, these, these two fast and then spend a little bit of time on the last one. It gives faith. Listen to this, John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Here's what amazes me. If you know the Last Supper, Jesus has just interrupted his disciples because they are arguing with each other about who was the greatest. This is the group that has had no faith, made tons of mistakes, totally blown it. They're all gonna deny Jesus and run away from him. And what does Jesus say to them? You guys are gonna do greater works than me. That's faith. That's unbelievable. Jesus would say to Saul, a murderer, a blasphemer in Acts chapter nine. Hey, you're gonna stand before kings. I think there are, there are two ways you can look at life. You can either tell people like it is, or you can tell people like it could be. Listen, this is what you could be. Listen, this is what you could do. To me, agape, agape always gives faith. I have faith in you. I have faith in you because Jesus is with the Father and he can empower you and he can transform you. I'm gonna speak faith to you. The opposite of it is nagging. Do you know that? That's what nagging is. And I've yet to find the Bible verse that says love nags. We like a cool t-shirt, but other than that, it's not in the Bible. I don't nag you guys. Like I don't get down on you guys. And, and there's plenty of like information I get where people are like, ah, oh, I had this neighbor and he went to Edgewater. Rah, 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 rah. I'm like, well, you know, I've done the same thing to people. So that's probably why they're coming. So there you have it. I could do all that, but I don't because I believe Edgewater and the body of Christ in Grant's past can change our city. And I'm gonna keep speaking that. Like we can see Grant's past changed. We can break some of these cycles that have been generational in our community. We can break it. And I am hopeful about that. And I'm gonna keep speaking that and talking about that because agape, agape gives faith. Number five, agape gives hope. And you can go to a text if you want to, or you can just look at your own heart. I think about myself, how Jesus took a risk on me Jesus takes a risk on you and me and says, I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to give you this hope. I love what he says to Peter after he knows Peter's going to deny him. He says, Peter, you're on Satan's wish list. He's got a target on you and he wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And when you are converted, not if, it's when you're converted strengthen the brothers. 
And Peter goes on to preach to, six, to a bunch of people, 3,000 get saved day one, and he just is amazing. There's hope. Maybe 2017 was really dark for you. I know some families that it was really dark for them. Here's what I always say to them. Listen, here's what Jesus says. John 16, 31. In this world, you'll have tribulation. In this world, is gonna be darkness. The record skipped in Genesis chapter three. The, the, this place is broken. But Jesus says this, be a good cheer because I've overcome. That's our hope. Our hope is that Jesus has overcome sin, death, our flesh, and the devil. And that's what he did. Have hope. Lastly, I'll spend a little bit of time on this. It's just love gives. Just love gives. If you want to know about agape, you can equate it with giving. So flip with me really quickly to Matthew 25, where we kind of see Jesus talking about us as kings and queens, ruling with him, and the reason why we get to rule with him. It's both encouraging and convicting. If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus wasn't just focused on people's physical or spiritual needs. He preached, he taught, he prayed, he blessed, but also Jesus was very concerned about physical needs. So there's a bunch of people that follow him over and over and Jesus will say to his disciples, hey, what do we do about all these hungry people? His disciples respond by saying, send them away. Jesus responds by saying, uh-uh, we're gonna feed them. So listen to this text. What Jesus expects of you and me. Matthew 25, 31. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Who inherits kingdoms? Kings and queens. That's who. Come, you're ready. Your kings, your queens, inherit this kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God's design is not the brokenness of this world. God's design has always been to have human partners with him ruling and reigning in this world. This is the way it's always supposed to be. It got derailed, I renewed it, and now it's on track. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How brilliant is that passage? 
The end comes. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. He says to the sheep, you're coming in. You get to inherit a kingdom because of what you did to me. You clothed me, you fed me, you visited me, you helped me. And they say, what? When did we do that? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers. The big question of love is this. How did you, how did I, how did we treat those that were most vulnerable around us? That's the big question of agape. How did I, how did Matt Heverly treat those that were most vulnerable around me? In the end, Jesus will not come to me and say, hey, Matt, how are those sermons you preached? Well, you know, (laughs) they're pretty good. You could podcast them if you wanted. I don't know. He's not going to say that. He's saying, Matt, how did you treat those that were most vulnerable around you? Because in my kingdom, the kings and queens are going to rule by love. They're going to be lovers. And they're going to love those that are least among us. That's who's going to rule my kingdom. And when I think about this, and I've mentioned this before, I always think this is what my wife does. Like, I don't do this very well. When the end comes and everybody's in line, my wife is gonna be so far in front of me, I'm gonna be like, hey, put a good word in for me, sweetie. I hope to see her, because she gets this. Like right now we have two extra kids in our house and it's been interesting. And so people will say, we've got seven children in our home and people will say, hey, that must be tough. And I always say, not for me. No, I go to work, I do my thing, the, the person that shoulders this and carries this is my wife, day in, day out. And we've had two new ones since August. She shoulders it and she has such a heart for it. She's so kind. She's so good at it. She just does this right here over and over and over again. And it's not always roses with them. We have two right now, Arrow, he's three, Terrain, he's six. And, and there's good moments and there's bad moments. Sometimes there's bad moments. So on Monday, school was canceled, and joy of joy, all seven kids were around. So they're there, it's my day off, and we clothe Arrow, who's three, and my son, Myron, who's also three. So it's almost like having twins right now. My heart really beats for people who have twins. It's like, wow, they just feed off each other. It's not just two kids, it's like they multiply and become like 75 kids. Like, it's insane. So we we, we let them go out play in the snow, and I thought, man, I should check on them. I don't know what they're doing. And about a year ago, we bought a new car, like, because we're doing a lot of running around. So it's new to us, 2009, little Acura, and we're trying to take really good care of it. And with nine people, it kind of gets, you know, there's just, you got to really take care of it. So we have this car and um, I come outside and I come around the corner and there's Arrow and Terrain, not Arrow, there's Arrow and my son, Myron. They had slammed their, their wagon up against the Acura and they were climbing up the hood, up the windshield, up on top of the roof of it, and they were sliding in their grimy little outfits down the front of the car. And I was just like, ah, they saw me, and both of them just went, we're actually ice sculptures, he can't see us. I just looked at him, I said, leave now, and they just went, whoom, and took off. (laughs) So it's not always rosy, it's sometimes just like, ah. But there are moments that are brilliant, and I have one actually journaled down. And it was a number of months ago, I came in and Arrow was playing with 
some Legos, I think. And I sat down, I just spent some time with him. Let's build something. And he looks over at me and he doesn't call me dad. And I don't really want him to call me dad. Like the whole thing is like so heartbreaking. You know that there's a dad and mom that aren't enjoying their kids right now. But sometimes he does. And so I'm sitting there and I'm, and I'm playing with him. And, and he looks at me and he goes, dad? I said, yeah, bud. He goes, I really like you. Yeah. I'll tell you, that was better than any sermon I've ever preached. Jesus will pay you back. When you give, you get back, pressed down, running over. That's what you get back. Are we givers? Love gives. For God so loved that he gave. Are we givers? And some of you, man, you guys are unbelievable. So we started Safe Families last year and uh, there's amazing things that have happened. Right now we have seven kind of kids in our care. In fact, we have a family, a family that lived in Eagle Point and now they're here with us because it's just kind of Safe Families essentially. And it's just brilliant. And around those seven kids, there's actually about 70 people, maybe more than that, because it's not just one-on-one. It's, we really want a big ratio so that it's, it's just community. And furniture and gift cards and meals. And it's brilliant. Love that. You guys are doing awesome there. But if you're saying, are there more needs? We have two giant needs right now in 2017. In fact, probably for the rest of life, there are going to be giant needs. And the needs are this. Number one, Hearts of the Mission, which started this last year in Grants Pass. They have teens there. And their biggest need with the 12 teens are mentors. Because what they are finding is this, if you can attach a teen that's really found hardship in life with somebody that is a secure, available adult, they do so much better. Because most teens that are at Hearts of the Mission, what they found is this, they found nobody sticks by them. They've learned more about faithfulness from their dog than from their dads. And it's heartbreaking. And what they need is someone that's just going to say, I've got you and I won't let go of you. So if you're saying, I could really do that with some teens. Okay, uh, after this service, Sean Logo will be in back. Uh, we get your information. And the other side just goes right along with it. We have kind of the little kids taking care of safe families, but it seems like everyone's afraid of teenagers. So they're like, yeah, I'll take kids six and down. I, mean, I get that. I have teenagers in my house. Sometimes they scare me as well. And they're my own teenagers. So yeah, I get that. But if you're saying, hey, we're in a place in life where we feel like we could do that, we have a giant need for homes that will take teens. And here's the thing about a teenager. It is the most pivotal time in their life. They are launching. The arrow is being released at that point. Where, where that thing is going really is determined by the teenage years. So you can have just this massive effect on the life of a person it's really been run over by this world by saying, oh, I, we could do that. We could open our home to that. So if you say, I'd like to do that as well, then Sean Logan in the back, the connect tent, um, he'll do that for you. Well, Matt, I just don't think I can do that stuff. I don't think I can give out in this way. I think you can. Here's why. In John 15, here's what Jesus says. He says, the Father's loved me and I've loved you. Now go love people. See, it's not about you kind of trying to figure out how to love. It's realizing you are loved, and that you are loved. You're not a container of that love. You're a conduit of that love. And right up here, right now, 
We have the greatest demonstration of agape in history, that Jesus would give himself for us wholly and completely. When you come to the table today, here's what I would ask you to think and pray. Jesus, help me to know I'm loved so that I can love people. Fill me, empower me, remind me of how much you love me. And then enable me to go from this place on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and love people. And I'll come back here and I'll fill up again on your love and I'll go out and love people. And that's how our world has changed. It's agape. And as a believer, it's not our duty, it's our destiny. We are going to become, Matthew 25, kings and queens who are lovers and rule by love, not by laws. And so Jesus, I pray as we partake, I pray that you would fill each heart here with your love, that we would know your agape, your self-givingness, and that we could walk out of this building, Lord, whether it's to invest in hearts with a mission or safe families or our spouse or our kids or a coworker or a friend or a neighbor, we could walk from this place enabled, filled, empowered to be agape, self-giving lovers. And I pray, Lord, that those who have come in here weak and weary, I pray that the cup and the bread would be the bread of life for them. That you would do what only you can do. Touch and heal and shed light and give hope and bring meaning and shalom. And may the cup and the bread do that for each of us this day. We pray this in your name. Amen.